0: Let's turn over to 2 Chronicles chapter 12. Well, I'm excited this morning. I'm getting to share something with you that the Lord showed me about, I'm not sure now, maybe three or four years ago. This scripture just jumped out at me, and I have been meditating on this for three or four years, and I've never ministered on this. I'm probably going to be doing a series this entire week on this subject. I believe it will really, really help you. Um, so I can promise you the things you'll be hearing will be fresh. I've never shared this before. The way that I minister, there's some good to it and there's some bad to it. I have people, Bernie was mentioning last night, the way I get up and I don't have notes and stuff. And I've had one guy get up and said it just made him madder than anything that I could get up and share without notes. But you know, one of the drawbacks to it is that I can't share something until I've mulled it over and and walked it out and stuff. And I've been meditating on these scriptures for about three or four years And I've never ministered on this yet. So anyway, that's the way it happens. I just have to meditate on something until finally it's done. I don't know how to describe that, but it's just like putting something in the oven and you poke it every once in a while and it's not done yet. And so uh, anyway, this will be my first time to share this, but the drawback to it is that I'm practicing as I share it with you. So I'll come back maybe in a year and have a great series on this, but at the moment you're just getting the first shot on this, but I believe it'll be good for you. Uh, here in Second Chronicles chapter 12, uh, I spend a lot of time reading First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and the reason I do that is kind of like history, going through the history of the Old Testament. And the Scripture says in First Corinthians chapter 10, twice in that chapter, it says that you can learn by the examples of the Old Testament people. And the Lord really spoke to me, you know, that I don't have to learn everything through hard knocks. I can go back to other people and see what they've done. And these things happen to them for our examples so that we can learn through their problems. And, I, you know, there's a saying many of you have heard that if you don't know history, then you're bound to repeat it. And we use that a lot in the secular realm, but, boy, it is especially true in the spiritual realm. That's what the reason the the Word of God was written is to give you understanding about people as they sought the Lord and how things worked with them and, and the effects of not seeking the Lord and bad decisions. So I spent a lot of time reading Old Testament Scripture and looking at these things and getting benefit from them. And as I was reading through here, let me uh, go down Second Chronicles chapter 12. Let's start reading with verse 13. This is talking about King Rehoboam, probably one of your favorite kings. Most people don't pay much attention to this, but there's some good things in it says in verse 13, So King Rehoboam strengthened himself in Jerusalem and reigned, for Rehoboam was one and forty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned seventeen years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen out of all of the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And his mother's name was Naamah an Ammonitis, and he did evil because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. Boy, that is a strong scripture. I have been meditating on that, like I said, for a tremendous long time. But this scripture says that he did evil because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. You know, I am convinced in my time that I've been in the ministry dealing with people that most people do evil, or you could you could phrase it a lot of different ways. A lot of people don't follow through with their commitment with the Lord. A lot of people grow cold and fall away from the Lord. A lot of people enter into sin. They yield to temptation or whatever. And it's not because most people go out and are determined to do so. I don't know anybody that gets up in the morning and just plots ways that they can do evil, ways that they can sin against God. And yet, I found a lot of people that really have had a commitment to the Lord. God has done something to them. They have a love for the Lord, and yet they wind up falling away from the Lord. Now, I'm not trying to confess anything negative at all, but I'm saying that if this is a typical group right here, I could guarantee you that in another nine years, Bernie said I've known him nine years, if I was to come back in another nine years, there would be a large percentage of the people in this church that would have grown cold, that you would have fallen away from God, things in your life would have turned you against God. Now, I know that you don't like to think that way, and a lot of people say, I'm just not even going to consider it, but you know, the Scripture says that adversity comes. It does come, and and it's a fool that doesn't consider what's going to happen, you know, if certain things happen. You need to think about some things, not in a negative term, but you need to realize that there will be adversity come your way. And what plan do you have in place to keep from growing cold towards the Lord? It's kind of like gravity. You know, gravity is always there. And when you're flying, you are applying that law of thrust and lift. And as long as that's working, you can overcome that gravity and you can fly above it. But you turn those engines off and gravity is always there. Gravity doesn't come on when you turn the engines off. Gravity is always there. The temptation to fall away from the Lord, the temptation to do evil in the sight of the Lord is always there. And the only way that you're going to effectively overcome it is to have a plan, some force operating in your life to help you overcome that. And you know, this scripture is talking about Rehoboam. It says the reason he did evil in the sight of the Lord was because he had not prepared his heart to seek the Lord. Well, that says volumes. That one little verse is super important. Rehoboam was a man that started out seeking God. This is the son of Solomon, the grandson of uh, David. And Rehoboam was the first king over Israel once the nation split. After Solomon's death... The uh, tribes came to him, and they said, Solomon taxed us so much that our yoke was heavy. says, take away the taxes, lighten our burden, and we'll serve you. And so Rehoboam, he uh, told him, give him three days. And he went and consulted with the people who were counselors to Solomon, his father, and the counselors of Solomon. They said, if you'll serve these people today and yield to them and give in to them on what they've asked, then they'll serve you forever. But then he went to the young man that grew up with him, and they said, what do you say? And they, and, uh, they said, tell them that your little finger is going to be thicker than your father's thigh. It says that, man, here, father, chastise them with scorpions, but you're going to, I mean, with whips, but you're going to chastise them with scorpions. In other words, prove to them that you're a leader. Show your might and your power. So that's what he did. He went back and answered the people that way, and as a result, 10 of the 12 tribes took off with Jeroboam, And he became king over the northern ten tribes, and all Rehoboam had left was uh, two tribes, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. And so he gathered all of the forces together. There was over 400,000 men, and he was going to go fight against the northern ten tribes and bring them back into the kingdom. And a man came to him, a prophet, and this prophet spoke to him, And he said that this is not God's will, that God has removed these tribes because of the sins of Solomon your father, and you will not prosper in this thing, says repent and obey the Lord. And Rehoboam was sensitive to God. Rehoboam called the entire war off because the prophet came and spoke to him. Now that says a lot. Rehoboam was a guy that was sensitive to the Lord. And the scripture even says that the first three years, he reigned 17 years, And the first three years of his reign, everything went well because the Scripture says that he sought the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father. So at one time, Rehoboam was a man that loved God. Rehoboam was a man that was sensitive to God. And he was trying, and he made some mistakes, but Rehoboam had a heart after God. But the Scripture says that he finally did evil because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. Brothers and sisters, I'm trying to share a real uh, sobering truth with you today, but I can guarantee you that Satan has a plan against you to take you away from following the Lord. And and the world is going to put pressure on you. You know, when I went in the service, one of the only thing I ever heard a chaplain say in the service that ministered to me, I mean the only thing, and I was a chaplain's assistant. <laughs> the very first chaplain I ever saw got up and cussed for 30 minutes and told the guys, he says, this is just to prove to you that I'm one of the guys and if you have a problem, you can come to me. One of my chaplains that I served with in Vietnam, he got drunk and stripped naked and got up there with the uh, prostitutes that the government brought in and tried to have sex with them on the stage in front of 500 guys. That was the chaplain that I was working with. So I didn't get a whole bunch from chaplains. But this one chaplain, the day that we got our orders to go to Vietnam, this one chaplain, he got up. I mean, it was was interesting because here was 20, 30-year-old guys crying because they got orders to go to Vietnam. And this chaplain got up And he says, I want to tell you all that the army is a fire and it'll melt you. He says, every last one of you are going to be melted. There will not a single one come out of this the way that you went in. But he says, you'll fit into whatever mold you pick for yourself. He says, the army will melt you, but you will conform to the mold that you pick for yourself. And boy, the Lord really spoke that to me. And you know, in my life, I had made a commitment to the Lord that I was going to serve God regardless. I was going to seek God with all of my heart. And sure enough, the army was afire. It melted me, I guarantee you. But I got, I came out of there stronger than I'd ever been with the Lord. I mean, all of the pressures, everything I went through in Vietnam just pressed me and pushed me that much stronger towards the Lord. You know, life is like that for every last one of you. You're going to have things that come against you and every last one of you under pressure are going to be squeezed into something. But the good news is that you get to pick which mold you get squeezed into. It's your choice. And basically that's what the Lord was speaking here about Jeroboam or Rehoboam was that he didn't prepare his heart. Rehoboam had not made the choices that were necessary to set his heart after seeking God. At one time, he just kind of naturally did it because God had intervened in his life. God had touched him. Some things had worked his way. But he hadn't set his heart to seek God. This very word that was translated prepare right here is the same word that was translated fix in the Bible also. Four different times it was translated fixed, and uh, David is the one that spoke all of those. Look over in Psalms chapter 57. This is David speaking this psalm. In Psalms chapter 57, the very subscript, I don't know if all of you have this in your Bible, most Bibles have this, but there's a subscript under the uh, chapter here, and before it actually gets into the uh, material, and it says to the chief musician, and I can't pronounce this name, Altasketh, something like that. What that word means is, do not destroy. In other words, David, when he wrote this psalm, he wrote this word up there, which means do not destroy. This is important. Don't anybody tamper with this. Don't change it. David was trying to set this in stone. And then the word miktam just simply means it was a poem of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. So it tells you what was happening. There's a couple of instances over in 1 Samuel chapter 22. It talks about David went down to this cave of Dulem and hid from Saul during the time that Saul was trying to destroy him. And then also in the 24th chapter of the book of 1 Samuel, it shows where David and his man Saul was pursuing him. Real quickly, let me just give you a little bit of history. I'm not going to try and bore you with this, but for those of you that don't know this, Saul was the king over Israel. David was chosen by God to replace him. And uh, Samuel went and anointed David to become the king and it was at least 13 years in between the time when David was anointed to be king until he actually became king and during that period of time Saul actually just rebelled at God he got into witchcraft he consulted with a witch at Endor he rebelled at God he was just he just became reprobate the guy was demon possessed he had all kinds of problems he tried to kill David on a number of occasions and finally David had to flee from Saul and David went down into this cave of Dulam, and all of the robbers, all of the thieves, all of the people who were going to be sent to prison, they went down to David, and they became his men, and he had eventually 600 men that he uh, supported that lived with him, and they became his army, and he had to just go around and hide from Saul constantly. One time he actually went to the king of Gath, which was a foreign country. It was a Philistine. Philistine. You remember he's the one that killed Goliath? and Gath was right there, Goliath was from that area, and he went to the king over that, and when they saw that David had come there, they said, isn't this the one that they're singing about, that Saul is slaying his thousands, but David is ten thousands? And you know what David had to do in that situation? Because he thought that this king was going to kill him, David had to act like he's crazy and he actually started scribbling on the wall and letting his spit run off of his beard and acting like he was crazy. And because of that, they said, well, there's no way that this guy's going to do us any harm, and they let him go. <laughs> well, it's amazing. There, there's a lot in what I'm saying right here, if you could listen to it, could really minister to you. I mean, this guy was the anointed of God. He had been chosen by God. In God's eyes, he was the king, and he had to act like a crazy man to save his life. Oh, that's powerful. you know, in between the time when you're called and when you actually see God's will fulfilled in your life, you may go through some hard times. David went through some super hard times, and yet he was still the anointed of God through that whole time. And one of the instances, I believe the one that this Psalms chapter 57 is written about, David was hiding with all of these men, and he was actually in a cave. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 24. He was hiding in this cave because Saul had gone out trying to kill him. And he had over 3,000 men that were with him. And so David and his men were hiding in this cave. And Saul, in the heat of the day, came into this cave and decided to lay down and take a nap in this cave. And so David and all of his men were hiding back in the corners of the cave. And Saul and his guys were sleeping in the cave. And so David's men, when they saw what had happened, they said, David, this is the day that the Lord has spoken to you about. It's an opportunity for you to kill Saul and to take the kingdom. And so David went out there, and while Saul was asleep, he got his knife, and he cut off the hem of his robe, and he took it and went back into the side of the cave. And then as Saul got up and began to start walking out of the cave, David walked out behind him and began to speak to him, And he says, why do you listen to people that tell you that I'm trying to steal the kingdom from you? He says, today you see that God put you in my hands. I had your life in my hands. I actually cut off the hem of your garment, and he held it up and showed it to Saul. And he said, I could have killed you today. And he says, the people that were with me asked me to kill you today and take the kingdom. But he says, your life was much set by in my eyes. And he says, I'll never stretch forth my hand to touch God's anointed.'" He says, your day will come to die or naturally, or you'll get killed in battle. Something will happen to you but it says, I will never lift up my hand against God's anointing. Boy, David showed a tremendous amount of integrity. And you know, the neat thing about that story, if you read the end of the 24th chapter of 1 Samuel, after David had said this, Saul, who is just, I mean, possessed with killing David, Saul fell down and began to say, is this your voice, my son, David. And he said, because you've done this to me, he says, now I know that you will prosper. Now I know that you will win and that you will become king over all of Israel. And here's the guy who was king and he was trying to stop David from taking the kingdom. His enemy was confessing over him that I know you will become king. And when you become king, make a promise to me that you won't destroy my children and destroy all of my seed from the face of the earth. Well, that's powerful. That is powerful to get your enemy to fall down and confess, I know you're going to win. Now that didn't end the struggle because Saul again tried to kill him on another occasion. But this is tremendous. And David wrote Psalms 57 about this exact instance is what this little header here is saying. And so let me read this to you out of Psalms chapter 57 says, Be merciful unto me, O God, be merciful unto me, for my soul trusteth in thee. Yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. He's talking specifically about Saul trying to kill him and searching for him. I will cry unto God, Most High, unto God that performeth all things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me from the approach of him that would swallow, up, swallow me up. Selah. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. My soul is among lions, and I lie even among them that are set on fire, even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let thy glory be above all of the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have digged a pit before me into the midst whereof they are fallen themselves but look in verse 7. Here's all these calamities that have happened unto him, but he says, My heart is fixed, O God. My heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise. You know, this word fixed is the exact word that was prepared over there in 2 uh, Chronicles chapter 12, verse 14. In other words, when it's talking about that you have to prepare your heart, it's talking about that you have to fix your heart, like you have to set your heart. You have to make a commitment that this is who I am, This is what I'm going to do. You have to predetermine what your course of action is going to be before you ever come into an adversity. You know, if David had not have had his heart fixed, if he would have been in that cave, and here's this opportunity to end 13 years worth of struggle, a guy trying to kill him for no reason, David had been faithful. You know, David had a lot of reasons. Saul at first started out liking David. Saul at first gave David his daughter, Michael, to be his wife. And Michael loved David. They had a real romance, which was unusual in those days, but they had a great relationship. And when Saul tried to kill David, Michael told him, he says, unless you escape tonight, you'll be dead in the morning. And so Michael uh, put uh, pillows in the bed and put covers over it and made it look like David was laying in the bed. And when the soldiers came to kill David, Michael says, well, he's sick, he cannot come. the king and so they went back and that bought David some time to to flee and to get away and when they finally came back Saul said kill him in his bed if he's sick thrust him through right in the bed and they went in there and it was nothing but pillows in the bed she saved his life and you know what Saul did he took Michael and gave her to another man and made her another man's wife David lost his wife the one that saved his life And I mean, Saul did that to him, Saul was trying to kill him, Saul was doing all of these things to him, and David, if he had not have fixed his heart, if he hadn't have set his heart in a certain direction, I can guarantee you in that cave, when he had this opportunity and every voice around him was saying, kill Saul, today's your opportunity, you know, it would have been very convenient, and he would have probably killed Saul, and there wouldn't have been anybody blamed him. You know, back in those days, that's the way the kingdoms passed from one person to another was they overthrew the previous person. It was all through military stuff. Nobody would have blamed David. He could he could have ended a tremendous amount of strife, a tremendous amount of problems. You know, in our lives, I can guarantee you that there's some of you that have probably already been through some rough things and you failed God and things happened that you never would have counted on. And the reason that it happened, the reason that evil came was you didn't just go out and determine that you were going to sin against God and that you were going to be unfaithful to God but you hadn't predetermined what you would do with the rest of your life. You hadn't fixed your heart. You hadn't set your heart in a certain way so that there was no negotiating what you would do. And because of it, you get put into a certain situation. You get under pressure. Satan tempts you, and many of you just fall into it, not because you desired it. And once it happens, once you make a mess of your life, you feel terrible. Amen. I was just a couple of weeks ago over here in, uh, what was it, Iona? Is that the name of this place? Ionia. I was over there in the prison, and uh, I th- we had a great service over there. Some of those guys, it was one of the most turned-on church services I've ever been in my life. Those guys had, had their life changed, and I got to visit with some of them. And, you know, they, most of those didn't sit there and plan on a way to get into prison. They never planned on that. They never saw what was going to happen. It was just something on the spur of the moment. Brothers and sisters, that's the way that Satan comes against us. He just puts you in positions. You walk away from God step by step. Nobody just walks away from God, runs away from God. Very few people would ever do something like that. But it's a progressive thing. I'm sure you've probably heard this illustration about putting a frog in a hot pan of water and a frog will immediately jump out. But you can put a frog in a cold pan of water and start heating it gradually and that frog will stay in there until he boils to death because it came gradually and he didn't know what was happening. That's the way that Satan comes against us. And the key to it, the key to preserving yourself is to have your heart fixed like what David talked about. Boy, it's a tremendous example. To set your heart. You know the word fixed means that it's unmovable, it's constant, it's non-negotiable. It means that it is something that is steadfast, it's forever going to be the same. And many of you don't recognize this, but you can set your heart like that. Our society doesn't embrace this very much. Most of us, it is a relative... Uh, theology that we have. I even heard, I think it was President Clinton, I probably shouldn't use his name because I'm not totally uh, sure of this, but I think that somebody was telling me this week that President Clinton was being interviewed about Christian things and moral views, and he said something that Christianity and moral views have to be relative to the day that you live in. And that was his way of explaining his position on abortion and things like this, is to say that this was old, the Bible was out of date, it no longer related, and that you needed to update things and make it relative to the society that you live in. Well, see, that is the theology that our world is preaching today. They're preaching those kind of things. But brothers and sisters, you need to come to a place where you recognize that there are absolutes. There are very few people that would argue with me. I was talking with a guy this last week and I said, you know, you would not disagree with me any at all if I said, now this is what I believe and I know you believe something different and you are totally free to believe what you want to, but here's what I believe. He says, that's exactly it. He says, that's what I want, that's what I'm trying to get you to see. He says, it's fine for you to believe the way you believe, but just let me believe the way I believe. Well, that's what our world's preaching today. Brothers and sisters, that's wrong. There are absolutes. There are consequences to your actions. You are determining what's happening in your life. And you can set your heart. You can set your heart so that it doesn't matter what situation you get in. You can determine before that I'm going to praise God. Like Psalms chapter 34 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And I'll have people come up and say, Well, brother, you haven't been through this problem. You haven't experienced this problem yet. You just never can tell what you're going to do. I can tell you what I'm going to do. Amen? I've set my heart. I've made some decisions. I've predetermined what I'm going to do, and it doesn't matter. Devil, shoot your best shot. Hit me with the biggest thing you've got. I'm going to praise God. There is nothing that the devil can do to move me away from God. Amen? Amen. Now, there's some of you that are probably saying, Brother, I'm not sure that you can never do that. That's because you've never fixed your heart. You've never prepared your heart. You've never set it in a certain direction. But it can be done. I guarantee you, I've been put in positions where if I was ever going to go back on God, I believe I'd have done it. And I've yet to do it. And I'm not going to do it. You can choose what you want to be. But most people today don't have their hearts set for anything. I mean, they don't stand. There is no absolutes in their life. There are no commitments that this is the way I'm going to be. And because of it, there's a lot of you today that at the moment, you love God. Maybe you are uh, in a situation you prayed and asked God for help. God's intervened. You're experiencing some good things. And at the moment, you're real sensitive towards God. You love God. You don't have any plans to go against God, but you don't have any plans, any commitments that this is exactly who I am. This is exactly the way my life is going to be, and it will never alter. You haven't set your heart. You haven't fixed it. And I can promise you that if something doesn't happen, you eventually will fall away from that commitment. Again, I'm not trying to be negative, but I have ministered to thousands and thousands and thousands of people that today are not seeking God. Any of you that have been around a long time, you can point to people that at one time loved God, and it's just hard for you to believe that they'd ever fall away. But this is the key, is that you have to set your heart. You have to fix your face. You know, the Scripture is talking about Jesus. Look over here in Isaiah chapter 50. And this gives us an insight into the attitude that Jesus had. This is Isaiah chapter 50. And if I had time, I'm not going to take time to do this, but if I had time, I could show you that Isaiah chapter 50 is actually a prophetic scripture. It's, it's Jesus speaking prophetically through Isaiah. And you could see this if you were to read it in context. In verse uh, 5, this is Isaiah chapter 50, verse 5, it says, The Lord hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters, my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. This is talking about Jesus and His crucifixion. It's talking about that He actually took a beating and that He literally let the people pluck the hair out of His beard. And look in verse 7, He says, For the Lord will help me. Therefore, I shall not be confounded. Therefore, have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. That's exactly the same thing that we're talking about. See, that's what Rehoboam failed to do. Rehoboam failed to make a commitment and to set his face and to say, This is who I am and this is what I will be. But Jesus, even Jesus says that he has set his face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. In verse 8 he says, He is near that justifieth me. Who will contend with me? Of course, that's the devil. He knew that Satan was coming against him. He says, Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near before me. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? Lo, they shall all wax old as a garment. The moth shall eat them up. In effect, in modern English, what Jesus was saying is, Devil, where are you? Amen. Who's he that's going to fight against me? Satan, what do you want to do? You want to try and conquer me? He says, Come on, make my day. Amen. (laughs) Boy, I believe that that's an attitude that Jesus had. You know, Jesus, during the garden experience, He prayed and He asked God to let this cup pass from Him because He hated sin. Jesus loved us, but He hated becoming sin. And Jesus literally became sin for us is what the scripture says. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21. He literally took our sin. He didn't just get punished a little bit for our sin. The Bible says Jesus became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5 21. When Jesus cried out and he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was a quotation from Psalms chapter, uh, what is it? Chapter 22 verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the second verse says, Because you are holy. And you cannot behold sin. The reason God forsook Jesus is because Jesus literally took your and my sin into his body on the tree. And he literally suffered separation, rejection from God the Father because of the sin that he had experienced. And that's what Jesus was praying against. And if there was any way possible to get out of literally becoming sin, Jesus asked the Father to take it away from him. But once he knew that this was his This was what God determined for him, and that he was going to go through it. Then Isaiah chapter 50 shows you the attitude that he had. Well, once he knew that this was God's will, he went into the cross not dreading it, not crying, not uh, upset over it, not depressed, but he went into it knowing that God was going to help him, that he was going to come through this thing on the other side, and he came through with this attitude like, Satan, where are you? He even told his disciples that night, he says, Behold, Satan, the prince of this world, comes, and he has nothing in me. And he says, I'm not going to talk with you much from this time on. You know why? Because you get in trouble through what you say. Jesus wasn't going to express the fears and the things that he had. Jesus was a man tempted in all points like as we are. Jesus did not want to become sin. Jesus didn't want to suffer death and suffer the pain. He suffered pain just like you or I would have if he would have been crucified. Jesus suffered. If he would have voiced all of his feelings, Satan could have taken advantage of it. But Jesus knew that Satan was coming after him, and he said, I'm not going to talk with you because the prince of this world comes, and he has nothing in me. And he was expressing this attitude. Jesus had already predetermined what he would do. I guarantee you, if there was any fluctuation in Jesus, if he would have been on the cross saying, do I really want to go through with this, his flesh would have overridden Brothers and sisters, one of the reasons a lot of people make the mistakes that they do is because they've got so many options left open to them. You need to get to a place where you commit yourself to God that I mean there are no options. You know, my wife and I, divorce is not an option. I got married, my dad died when I was 12 years old, so my uncle Safi took me aside right before we got married, and he said, boy, you're a Womack, and Womacks don't get divorces. And then he he added to it and strengthened it by saying, this isn't Sears and Roebuck. If you don't like her, you can't bring her back. That was his way of saying, you know, you're committed. Are you sure you're ready? And then we had scriptures that we stood on. And I guarantee you, divorce is not an option. It is not an option. We've thought of murder a few times, but divorce never. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. We got a blessed marriage. But you know why a lot of people are experiencing divorce today is because it is an option. It shouldn't be an option. You know, marriages aren't any different today than they've ever been. But the difference is people's attitude towards it. People aren't as committed towards marriage. That's the main difference. Brothers and sisters, there's, there's problems and people will say, Oh, there's pressures on marriage today that we didn't have 50 years ago. Well, that's true, but there were pressures 50 years ago that you don't have today. For instance, 50 years ago, people were working 70 and 80 hour work weeks. That was normal. They didn't have anything, even working all of that. The pressures on people 50 years ago were just different. Marriage is always taking a supernatural ability to to get through it. But see, people work through it. Marriages work because of people's commitment levels. Today, people are actually writing up contracts and making decisions on how they'll disperse their assets before their marriage. So that they won't have to do it in the heat of anger and strife and things like that. Now somebody is doing that. Boy, you got two strikes against you when you start your marriage. Because you're just trying it. And if everything goes right, then you'll stay with it. But if a problem comes up, well then you've already got an out made. Boy, you need to burn your bridges behind you. You need to get to a place to where there are no alternatives. That's one reason. It's not the only reason. There's a lot of things, but that's one big reason that marriages have problems today, is because people aren't committed. They're just trying it. Well, if you try it, it's not going to work. There's people that try healing, but they aren't committed to it. You get committed to it. When you prepare your heart, when you fix your heart, and you say, this is what God's Word says, and come hell or high water, live or die, sink or swim, God is my healer, you get that kind of attitude, and you know what? You'll get healed. But I've seen lots of people try healing, and it doesn't work for them. I actually had some people come by one time. I was holding a meeting at a church, and they called the pastor, and they came by for prayer. And we prayed for them. And then we didn't see them at church that night. We didn't see them the next day, and we called to see how they were doing. And they were in the hospital. We went up to the hospital to visit them. And it turned out that before they came to see us, they had already called the hospital and had a room reserved for them, and they were on their way to the hospital, and they thought they'd stop by and let us pray for them. And then they wondered why our prayer didn't work. That's not the way you do it, brothers and sisters. That's not the way you do it. You don't call the preacher on the way to the hospital. I mean, if you're going to believe God, believe God. That usually goes over about like that. (laughs) Most people, most spirit-filled people, most most tongue-talkers, most faith people are not committed to the subject of healing. That's true. There's a lot of you in here, and I'm not saying this. No, Bernie hadn't told me a thing, and I'm not saying it against anybody. I'm trying to help you by saying these things. But there's a lot of you in here that believe God can heal. And you would pray for a healing, but you aren't committed to it. And because of it, it's not going to work. That's not the way that it works. We're wanting something where we can call after God every time you get in trouble. But then, as soon as God answers, you can go back to living carnal and watching the junk that you watch on television, not seek God, not spend any time seeking God, and just have God deliver you every time you get in trouble. It doesn't work that way. Well, you have to make a commitment. You have to set your sights on the Lord. You have to fix your heart. That's what David was saying. My heart is fixed, O God. And then he repeats it. My heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise to God. Brothers and sisters, the reason a lot of people in here aren't experiencing the victory that God has for you is because your heart isn't fixed. You're wavering in your heart. Your heart's back and forth. All Satan's got to do is put you in a compromising situation. I mean, blow on you and you fall over. Man, there's not much stability at all. There's no roots in you. Amen? Amen or oh me. I'm saying this out of love for you. But you can go through, look at Samson. Samson is a man that loved God. But he hadn't. He didn't have his heart fixed on the things of God. He was able to be swayed and talked out of it. You could go through every person. You know, even David. David, who loved God. Man, when I read over there in, uh, I believe it's 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12, where David sinned with Bathsheba. It's just amazing to me how all of that happened. But you know, there were, there were steps towards that. It starts that chapter by saying, now at the season when kings went out to battle, David was alone in his house and he got up off of his bed in the evening and walked and he saw this beautiful woman washing herself. My first thought is, why if it was the season for kings to be out to battle, why wasn't David out to battle? David wasn't doing what he was called and anointed to do. He had sent somebody else out there. He was so prosperous that he had a an organization, an army that was working and he didn't have to lead the charge anymore and so he quit doing what he was called and anointed to do and got bored, basically. Got to walking away from the things of God. You know, if David would have kept doing what he was doing and what he'd been successful at, he wouldn't have ever had this problem with Bathsheba. When David sinned with Bathsheba and when Nathan came and reproved him and brought this to light, you know what David said, this really grabbed me. Just a couple of months ago I was reading this. When it happened, the Lord said that how could you have despised me to have done this great evil in my sight? And when I read that, I thought, God, what did this have to do with David despising you? He committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered Bathsheba's husband to cover up his sin. But how did that despise you? And see, this is a mindset. I was talking to a guy this last week. He says, I'm not hurting anybody else. I'm just hurting myself. He says, it's my life. I can destroy it if I want to. But see, he doesn't realize that we are accountable to God. Every time you're doing something to your life, you're actually standing against the one who made you and the purpose that God has for your life. And when David repented, he repented, and here's what he said in Psalms chapter 51. He says, "...against you and you only, O Lord, have I sinned and done this great evil in your sight." Man, I went back and read that and thought, what is he saying against you and you only? What about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? What about their family? What about the child that died because of David's sin? And yet David, see, had this thing in the right perspective. He says, God, you're the one that I transgressed against. You can see this same attitude, see, in Joseph. When Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife, and she lusted after him, and she tried to get Joseph to commit adultery with her, Joseph refused to do it. And when she pressured him day after day, he says, How could I do this great thing and sin against God? When I read that, I thought, well, what about sinning against Potiphar? <laughs> Amen. What about Potiphar's wife? What about all of the other things? And yet he didn't mention any of that. He, see, he had his heart fixed. He had a commitment with God. He had a covenant with God that, God, I want to live for you. I'm holy. I'm separated unto you. God, I am yours. And that's the real travesty of all of those things. The things that are happening in our life, there's a lot of you that think, well, I can get by with it. Man, I can go out here and live carnal and not seek God, and I'm not hurting anybody. I may not be the way I should be. I may not be everything I could be, but at least I'm not out here doing anything terrible. Well, see, you got the wrong attitude. You don't understand that God's got a perfect plan for your life. God's got good plans. And God has potential for each one of you that most of us have never, never, never come close to tapping into. And you don't understand that, man, it's, it's breaking God's heart when we are wasting our lives away and just allowing ourselves to go with every wind of doctrine and whichever crowd we're around, we blend into it. Look over in Jeremiah chapter 29. This is Jeremiah speaking. Jeremiah was a prophet. He was called the weeping prophet. He didn't get too many amens to his message. Jeremiah had just been blasting the people that because they had rejected God, there was going to be judgment upon them. They were going to actually be conquered and taken into captivity and have to live in a foreign land. And in the midst of all of this judgment and punishment, he turns right around and begins to start speaking positive things to them. I tell you, God's a good God. God, the only reason God ever rebukes you, the only reason God ever gets hard with you is because God loves you and He wants you to experience His best. And sometimes you gotta just, I mean, get serious with people to get them to experience God's best. So right in the midst of this rebuke, here's what the Lord begins to say through Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 10. He says, For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished. He's talking about after 70 years of bondage at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you an expected end. Boy, oh, that's a powerful scripture. This is what I'm saying. God loves you. God has good thoughts towards you. There's some people that get upset when you start talking about being separated unto God and seeking God, and they see it as a restrictive thing. And God doesn't want me to have any fun. God's trying to ruin my life, brothers and sisters. God's telling you these things because God loves you, and you don't have enough sense to run your own life. That's the truth. Hold your finger right here. I'll be back to it. Look in Jeremiah chapter 10. Boy, this is a powerful scripture. I believe all the scriptures are powerful, but these are ones that have spoken to me. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23. says, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. What a profound scripture. Boy, our culture doesn't believe this today. Our culture says, hey, you're independent. Nobody can tell you what to do. You've got rights. Nobody should boss your life. We don't have a submissive attitude at all. And you know, it really is a hindrance in walking with God because most of us are so independent, nobody tells me what to do. And that's the problem, that nobody tells you what to do. You're ruling your life. And that's exactly the reason your life's in such a mess. If your life's in a mess, it's because you did it. Our society says, oh no, you don't understand. It was because I was raised in a dysfunctional home that I'm the way that I am. (laughs) That's not the reason you're the way you are. Well, I'm saying this in love. I'm not saying it to hurt anybody, but that is a lie from the devil. It is not your family that made you the way you are. Your family may have given you an opportunity. They may have presented pressure on you, but again, you are today the way that you have thought that you are. Proverbs chapter 23 verse 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. You are today the way that you've been thinking. You have to blame yourself, not somebody else. Now I'm not saying that to condemn you, but I'm saying it to bless you. If you're a product, if you're just a victim of society, then you're going to stay a victim because society's not going to change. Society might change a little bit. You can influence it, but I guarantee you in one generation it would be a a miracle of unprecedented proportion to see our society totally change. You aren't going to see society change. If other people are the ones that have made you the way you are, then you're going to stay a victim the rest of your life. It's liberty to find out that, hey, other people have treated me bad. Other people have done things to me. But I had a choice whether to become bitter or better. Nobody made me the jerk I am. It was my choice. Amen. (laughs) That's liberty to find that out because then you can change. But if society is your problem, you aren't going to change society. You aren't going to change your parents. Man, psychology today is telling people that you're this way because of your parents. And some of your parents are dead and gone. And you're still letting your parents ruin your life. Wake up. Pull your thumb out of your mouth. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what happened to you 20 years ago. What's your excuse for having a bad adulthood? Amen. Your parents didn't make you the way you are. They may have given you opportunities, but they didn't make you that way. You know, I grew up without a father. My dad died when I was 12 years old, and before that, my dad actually died 10 years before that and was raised from the dead. It was really a miraculous encounter, but uh, we didn't understand a lot about healing and stuff, so he was sickly. And my dad always came home and went immediately to sleep. My dad never threw a baseball with me. He never played a game with me. My dad never did anything with me. I never had a dad uh, very much. He was dead by the time I was 12 years old. And, you know, it never hurt me. I I understood the situation. I never was bitter over that. I never went through a period of rebellion. I never turned away from God. According to our mentality today, you couldn't grow up and be normal with a childhood like that. And some people would doubt whether I did grow up and be normal, amen? (laughs) But from my perspective, I never was bitter. I never went through a period of rebellion. I never felt hurt. I never felt rejected. I didn't know I was supposed to be that way. I never even thought about what I didn't have. Until recently, I've been talking to some people and they've been telling me about all of their problems and they've got an excuse for it. They blamed it on this childhood. I didn't have a strong father figure. I didn't even have a father figure. And it didn't make me a homosexual. Brothers and sisters, that's a lie. These are mind games. We're being taught how to believe this stuff. I saw a guy interviewed on... uh, Television, and he was one of the leading psychiatrists in the nation specializing in multiple personality disorders. And they were asking him about all of the, you know, multiple personality disorders that are being diagnosed today. I mean, the number of it has just gone up, you know, a thousand percent. And he says, Why do you think that there's so much of this? And he says, It's because a psychiatrist. (laughs) He was a psychiatrist. And they said, what do you mean? And he says, I have dealt with hundreds of thousands of people with multiple personality disorders. And he says, I've never yet met a person with that problem that hadn't been to a psychiatrist. He says, you could never conceive that kind of problem on your own. It has to be taught you. It's an acquired trait. And this was the leading psychiatrist saying it. I tell you, there's a lot of things today. There's a lot of you that are giving in to things because you were abused. I, I dealt with a woman up in Stryker, Ohio. And this woman was abused from the time she was 5 years old until the time she was 14 years old. Had sex, her grandfather had sex with her every day of her life for that period of time. According to our way of thinking today, this woman had to be totally messed up. She got born again when she was 14 years old, and when she did, the Lord set her free from that, took away all of the hurt and the bitterness and the pain. She confessed it, became open with it, and her parents were so upset when they found out about it that they disowned their dad and separated him from the family, and because this girl wasn't mad at him, because she didn't hate her grandfather, and because all of this, they said, you're in denial, and they had rejected her. And from the time she was 14 until she was 26 is when I was talking to her, she says, my parents haven't spoken to me since because they say that something's wrong with me because I don't hate my grandfather and I'm, I'm not messed up over all of these things. And she says, but boy, the Lord just changed my heart. She says, I'm changed. She says, I'm free. She says, I love my grandfather today. I can go talk to him. She says, I'm not bitter. Society rejected this lady because she wasn't messed up. Brothers and sisters, our thinking is so screwed up today. We're blaming anybody and everybody else. It's not in the ways of man to direct his own steps. You don't have enough smart to direct your own steps. We need to learn to submit to God. You need to recognize that God didn't make you to be what people commonly quote as a free moral agent today. Now, it is true that you do have the choice. God's given you the choice, but His intention was for you to always be submitted unto Him and, and follow His leading. Let His guidance be the one that made the choice for you. This whole concept today of being an individual and nobody tells me what to do, is ju- it just stinks. It hinders people from serving God. God didn't make you to be that way. Amen? Amen. Turn back over to Jeremiah chapter 29. Verse 11, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. God has a good plan for your life. And brothers and sisters, most of us are ruining the plan today because of wrong decisions. Life is a a series of decisions. It's a series of choices. And you've got to recognize that the very first choice you have to make begins with what are you going to do with your life? Who are you? Who are you going to yield to? The choice about, well, I'm going to do my own thing, that's not an option. Choosing that just chose the devil. Being self-centered, doing your own thing, turns you over to Satan. Satan loves that. You don't have to choose the devil. Just choose yourself and you've chosen the devil. Satan is one that uses yourself as his landing zone, beachhead in your life. God has a perfect plan for you and it's only when you submit to God and and recognize that God's thoughts towards you are thoughts of good and not of evil. God is not trying to tell you what to do to ruin your life. He did not tell you to stay with one person in marriage for the rest of your life because God doesn't understand and God wants you to be in a miserable marriage the rest of your life. He said that because He knows it's better for you. It says over in Malachi chapter 2 that God hates putting away. He doesn't hate people who are divorced. He hates divorce because of what He sees that it does to people. Divorce is not your answer. It's never the answer. It usually goes over like that. I mean, that doesn't fit our theology today. Even churches rejected that. But that's what God says. God has thoughts towards you of good, not of evil. In verse 12, it says, Then shall you call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And you shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all of your heart. Well, that's powerful scripture. I know that there's somebody in here today that you came to church... And there is some desire for the things of God. Maybe some acknowledgement that, hey, my life is out of control. I need help. But, you know, there's a lot of people that go to church just out of frustration. And you didn't really come expecting to receive very much. It's just kind of like you're trying it. You come to church, and if you don't receive a miracle by the time you walk out the doors today, then you'll feel justified and say, well, I gave God a chance. I went to church, and my life didn't change. I mean, I tried. I called out, God changed my life, and nothing changed. Man, the Bible, that's not what the Bible teaches. This is what the Scriptures teaching. He says, you shall search for me and you shall find me when you search for me with all of your heart. Man, there's people today that are wanting God to intervene in their life and God to come in and straighten their life around and set everything on track and you're going to give Him ten minutes to do it. (laughs) Amen. And then after that, you're going to go right back to living the way that you were, not seeking God, not loving God, not serving God, not doing anything and yet you just wonder why God hadn't come through. God is not a genie that you rub the bottle and the answer comes out. Brothers and sisters, there needs to be a lifestyle. You need to have a decision in your heart that you're going to seek God. And you can make that decision. You can set your heart. You can fix your heart on certain things. And whatever you set your heart on, you'll become sensitive to. You know, I could divert right here and I'm not going to do it, but I've got a tape series out there on hardness of heart that would really minister to you. But you can make your heart sensitive to whatever you want it to be sensitive to, and you can harden your heart to whatever you want to be hardened unto. Most people aren't aware of all of this, and so they are doing it unconsciously. But most of us have become insensitive to God simply because of neglect, because we haven't sought God with our whole heart, because we haven't put our total attention upon God. And whatever you fail to put your attention upon, you automatically become hardened unto, insensitive unto. I've had people come up to me before and say, Brother, how can you quote scriptures? How can you remember where scriptures are? I can't remember where scriptures are. You just must have a photographic memory. No, that's not it at all. Matter of fact, around my office, you ought to see my staff. They take bets sometimes on what I'm going to forget and all of these kind of things. (laughs) I actually went camping one time, and uh, they took bets on how much stuff I'd forget on that camping trip. Brothers and sisters, I do not have a photographic memory, but I can guarantee you this: I can quote thousands, possibly tens of thousands, of scriptures because that's where my focus is. It's where my heart is. You know, I saw the Super Bowl last year, but I can't—I honestly cannot tell you who even played in the Super Bowl last year. Well, I, I remember now Dallas was one. I can't remember who they played against. But anyway, I saw the Super Bowl, and I can't remember it. Some of you can remember everything about it. You can remember every detail. You can tell me the percentages. You can tell me the first downs that a team had. You can tell me all these kind of things. I saw all that same information that you saw. You know why I don't remember it? Because that's not where my heart is. You know why you remember it? You can fill in the blanks. (laughs) You know why some of you can read the same Scripture that I read and it doesn't seem to be able to retain in your heart? It's because that's not where your heart is. You may read it, just like me sitting in front of that TV set and seeing the show, but it doesn't register because that's not where my heart is. This doesn't register because it's not where your heart is. You get your heart fixed upon God. You get to where God is the most important thing in your life. You become what people call a fanatic. Amen? Amen. Commit yourself 100% to God. Go to seeking Him. And and it's not a one-time deal. It's a lifestyle. That word prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. You know, you don't just prepare for something in one second. The word prepare carries with it. it. It takes time. There's effort over a prolonged period of time. You can actually develop a lifestyle to where it just becomes your nature to seek after God and to be constantly searching for the things of God. Brothers and sisters, you can do that. It says he prepared not his heart. It wasn't God that didn't prepare his heart. God's willing for every one of our hearts to be inclined towards him. Well, I've got a lot of other scriptures that I'll share with you during this week about how that God will prepare your heart. There are certain things you can do that, I mean, just act like a lightning rod that draws this sensitivity to the the Lord. We're going to share some things with you that I promise you could totally change your heart. And if you would open up and receive the things that we're talking about, I believe that by the end of this session that you could have a heart that was inclined towards God. Now, it needs to be fixed. You know, you also talk about like uh, certain things have to be hardened. They have to be set. Like you can pour concrete. You can make an impression in it, but then you have to let it set up and harden before it stays. You can set your heart to seek the Lord, but then you've got to retain that. You've got to walk in that for a while before it actually becomes fixed, set upon the things of the Lord. But we're going to at least help you establish some things in your life that I promise you will draw your heart towards the Lord. And if you'll follow through with it, it could really make a difference in your life. And I know that most of you here today want to serve the Lord. That's the reason you're in church, hopefully. You don't have to come to church in our society today. Hopefully you're here because you desire the things of God, but I can tell you that if this is a typical group, I have no way of knowing if it is, but if this is a typical group, there's at least 50% of you in here that have never set your heart to seek God. You haven't prepared your heart. You had not fixed it on the things of God. You're just in a time in your life where at the moment it seems like the convenient thing to do, and if it became inconvenient, you wouldn't be here. And I guarantee you that's a dangerous situation to be in. That's like being in one of those 747s and cutting the engines off. I can guarantee you, gravity still works. Satan is still around, and Satan is going to do everything he can to pull you away from God. And you have the privilege, the opportunity today of setting your heart, fixing your heart, making some determinations. That I guarantee you, it'll determine the outcome of your life. You can choose whether you want to be a success or a failure. You can choose whether you have a good relationship with God or a bad relationship. The choice is up to you. you. When you seek the Lord with all of your hearts, you'll find it. Amen? There's some good scriptures on that. So if you can, please come back. I believe it'll minister to you and help you. Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you for your word today. I'm asking you, Father, to open up our hearts. And Father, make this a revelation to people that we have to choose. And Father, we have to set our hearts to seek you. Father, I'm asking that you would make this a real revelation to people who are just right now, just going along and they haven't got any structure, any commitment to their life. They're just letting themselves be pushed about and tossed to and fro with every wave of doctrine that comes along. They're letting this society dictate morals to them and dictate values and all of these things. Father, I'm asking you to speak to those people today. And, Father, help them to realize that they need to set their heart. They need to prepare it, fix it on the things of God and let you dictate to them what their heart's going to be, how it's going to be fixed. Father, I'm asking you to speak to those people. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Father, I'm asking you for people whose hearts are fixed in the wrong direction. Father, it's already set. They've been going after other things. I'm asking you to help bring them to a place to where they'd recognize it. Father, you're the one with good plans for their life. You're the one that has thoughts towards them of good and not of evil. And Father, they'd turn and trust you and let you change their heart and bring it back to where it's supposed to be. Father, I just praise you. I believe that the Holy Spirit's doing that today. That, Father, you give people a repentant heart to turn from our own selfish things and let us recognize that it's not in the ways of a man to direct his own steps. Thank you, Lord Jesus.